Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Welcome to the Elk Shape Podcast. I'm Dan Staten. This is your blue collar, do-it-yourself, self-guided, public land, elk hunting learning curve resource where we leverage hunting to create more personal development. Our goal is to educate and encourage our listeners to become the best possible version of themselves through hard work, delayed gratification, and being accountable to themselves. Hey, what's up, guys? Welcome to the Elk Shape Podcast. So today we are sitting down with Jared Lyle. He's the CEO of Huntin' Full. I've known him for over a decade before he ever was a part of Huntin' Full back in his trophy taker days. Uh, he's been one of the most consistent elk killers I've ever known on public land. So seasoned and veteran and he's super humble. And he's one of the smartest guys I've, I seriously, I know. When it comes to business, when it comes to just being savvy about hunting, this guy's a thinker. And he's very intelligent, very articulate, and uh, honestly, one of my favorite people in the entire hunting industry, seriously. So a quick bio on him. I'm going to read what he wrote because uh, he had to write a bio for something else. And I'm like, man, that's a good bio. Let me just read it. So this is from Jared Lyle kind of introducing himself. One of my favorite books is How I Got This Way by Patrick McManus. I love the book because it provides insight into life events that molded the funniest outdoor writer I've ever read. It also helps you realize that when you think about who you are, it is pretty much just a combination of your personality, life experiences, and opportunities. In a nutshell, here are some of mine. How I got this way. My parents raised me, my sister, and I for adventure. Hunting, fishing, and trapping were not simply recreational endeavors. They were a way of life. My dad's continual pursuit of a new dream moved us all over the western United States in search of new and exciting ways to make a living. These adventures created a very close family bond. During that time, my, quote, homes consisted of everything from a float house logging camps in southeast Alaska to midwinter wall tents in the high deserts of northern Nevada. 
I alternated between Christian schools, one-room schoolhouses, and homeschooling during the first 14 years of my life. I was able to hunt, fish, and trap to my heart's content. My dad lost part of his leg in a logging accident when I was 12. I had looked forward to the age for years because that was the year I was going to get to hunt with dad. Instead, dad spent the next decade in and out of hospitals while I learned to become a quote, do-it-yourselfer bow hunter the hard way, which is a code for a lot of tag soup and a ton of money spent on arrows. The year after dad was injured, my parents accepted a caretaking job on an abandoned floating logging camp in the remote area in southeast Alaska. We were nine miles by boat and 80 miles of gravel road from the nearest store. We had no electricity, no running water, and no phones. Our groceries were flown into us on a float plane. It was not uncommon to go several weeks to months without seeing another living soul. In hindsight, my mom was crazy for that. She was also crazy tough. One vivid memory I have from that period of my life was getting firewood for the house. My dad's foot was basically a giant open wound at the time, so my mom had to handle firewood duty with my sister and me. Mom would load us up in our 18-foot boat and tow our skiff behind it nine miles to shore. Then she would drive us into the woods, fire up a chainsaw, and cut a load of firewood that my sister and I would load in the truck. We would drive back to the beach, unload the wood from the truck, and into the small skiff, and tow the firewood back to the floating house we lived in. At the time, it was just another normal activity for our family. I won't bore you with the details of how many house fires, car wrecks, boat wrecks, and pet coyotes and rattlesnakes we had growing up. I'll just say that it was enough to make my normal a little less than normal than most. I also say that it made my taste for wild places and adventure pretty much insatiable. In hindsight, it's no surprise that my normal path to starting my own family wasn't in the cards for me either. I met the love of my life when we were both baby-faced teenagers. Fortunately, we enjoyed our four-year friendship before we realized that we enjoyed each other's company so much that we didn't want to spend any time apart. We were married at the ripe ages of 18 and 22. In retrospect, we were crazy. Fortunately, we were also both very committed to each other and marriage. We grew up together, raised two amazing boys of our own, and struggled to pay the bills, and yes, even bickered once in a while. I considered the 25 years of marriage and 20-plus years of parenting part of how I got this way to be the most important piece of who I am today. It is still teaching me about commitment, unconditional love, and true partnership. Career and work stuff. Like many kids, I earned most of my early money by turning my tennis shoes green behind a rusty lawnmower in the summer months. However, I had always wanted to follow in my dad's footsteps. By age 15, I pestered a local logging contractor badly enough for a job that he finally gave in and hired me to handle brush piles in the logging units, dig fire line, and run a chainsaw. My newly teenager arms just didn't about survive those long summer days. The summer I turned 17, I was offered a seasonal job working on a commercial fishing boat in Alaska with a longtime family friend who also turned out to be a great role model for me. In spite of tough working conditions, the seven summers I spent on a boat in Bristol Bay, Alaska are some of the best memories I have in my teenage years. They were also exactly what I needed at the time in my life, and I always be grateful for that opportunity. The combination logger slash commercial fisherman filled a need for adventure in my life, but my new bride Ruthie and I felt strongly that we wanted to do something for others with our lives while we were young. We put feelers out for mission work in third world countries, but no doors open. Ironically, a door opened to work with high-risk teenagers in our home state of Idaho. We headed into that experience certain that we would change the world. We did not change the world, but I think we made a positive impact on some kids that were headed down some very bad paths. Equally important, that experience changes for the better, both individually and as a family. As with all good things, our time at the youth ranch drew to a close when I accepted a job in the archery industry, a field that I had always truly loved. 
Thanks to Dan Evans, I think I finally discovered what I want to do when I grow up. During my 14 years at Trophy Taker, I learned that hunting and the outdoor industry people are the finest people in the world to deal with, and I don't want to look anywhere else for the rest of my career. Perhaps that's how I landed at my most recent opportunity with Huntinful, a job that finally pairs my passion for hunting out of doors with helping people. It's the sweetest gig on earth, besides winning the lottery. So guys, basically, Jared Lyle is salt-of-the-earth dude. He's the CEO of Huntinful. That is an organization that's been around a very long time. We will dig into that during the conversation that we record. And you guys will get to know Jared Lyle if you didn't know who he was already. I've been working with Jared for a very long time in my early days of selling advertisement for Sportsman's Warehouse publication, as well as getting to know him as a friend and a mentor and somebody that I always picked his brain on bear hunting. And I owe a lot of my success bear hunting to this guy. And I'd always tap into his knowledge on archery. He's just one of the sharpest business guys ever. And for somebody like me who was literally hitting him up to buy advertising, it just speaks to his character that it didn't seem like I was working with another customer. We were actually friends and it was really exciting to stay in touch with him and watch him grow, his family grow, his beautiful wife, Ruthie. These are some of the best people on earth and I'm very honored to have him on the podcast today. You guys are going to enjoy listening about his background, his take on elk hunting, some of the tactics that he uses, and then getting into the nitty gritty details of applying because it is application season we have wyoming arizona montana all on deck and i think it's a good time to talk about some of this stuff and learn more about how hunting full can help you guys out and he'll have a special offer that i hope all of you take advantage of to where you can actually get a free consult with hunting full on any state you want or any hunt you're thinking about doing these guys are experts these are subject matter experts in the convoluted world in the information age where you can be overwhelmed it's very daunting to dig in on really relevant up-to-date information on where you want to hunt. These guys know what's up. So uh, I think you'll enjoy the conversation. Business-wise, we have the elk Shape camp that I have to promote because all uh, the spots aren't sold out yet. And I'm sitting over here as a self-employed elk Shape guy. I don't own a gym. And if people don't show up to these camps, I'm going to have to go uh, drive a bus or something. But no, seriously, I think if you're ready for some life-changing experiences, uh, start with an elk Shape camp. Yeah, it's a little bit of an investment, honestly, the returns will probably be a lifetime. I don't take that lightly. I really don't say that to impress you, but to impress upon you that elk shape camps will make you better at life. You will probably kill more elk and you'll probably be the best possible version of yourself. I'm looking to meet and help these people grow and mentor them throughout the years. So I take it very serious. Elk shape camp, we have six locations. You can find more information on elkshape.com and find a camp near you make some sacrifices, and you won't regret it. Now we have 90 Days to Freedom. That program is live. It's a PDF. It's 15 megabyte. It has probably 80 plus videos that are private to support the workouts, and it's seven days a week. Now, not working out seven days a week, but we are instructing you on what to do each and every day, including your rest days, injury prevention, cool downs, and a lot of strength and conditioning, as well as some test, retest workouts. I think it's thorough. It took me a long time to make it, and I'm super proud of it, and it's a good time of year to start this 90 days and give it a shot. Equipment-wise, you need a sandbag or a pair of dumbbells. It wouldn't hurt to have a box or a pull-up bar, and if you have some sort of monostructural, like i.e. a rower or a fan bike, or you don't mind running or sprinting, it, you can be doing it at your garage gym like I train. That's what we got. Let's get into the podcast with Jared Lyle. I appreciate your support. We try to stay on top of our game, and we try to produce one of the most down-to-earth, real-life podcasts out there where you can get better by just listening. Thank you for your support. Give us a five-star review if you feel so inclined. 
And again, Jared Lyle, hunting full. Here we go. Well, good morning, and thanks for taking the time to record with us. Uh, we already did your intro in the beginning, so we get to dive right in with all the things, tag application season, and a little bit of your hunting prowess. Let's start there. So for folks listening, I've known Jared for, I don't even know, maybe more than a decade and uh, when I first met him, he was over at Trophy Taker, and he was basically running the show while Dan Evans went and did all the hunting and slash creative design or something like that. But anyways, I've known Jared as an assailant. Like, he will kill elk and big bears consistently, and then obviously you've evolved from there. But uh, let's circle back to your early elk hunting days. Let's start there. Jared, when did you start elk hunting? Well, fortunately, I was like most of us. I grew up in a hunting family. And um, so my dad, you know, I think literally my earliest memory in life was like hanging onto my dad's leg and listening to a bull elk bugle. Um, when I think back through life, trying to think of my earliest memory, that's literally the one that I have. So I got addicted to that uh, sound and the adrenaline rush with it pretty early on. Um And then my dad was an archer. And so I started shooting a, you know, little wood bows and little fiberglass bows as early as I can remember. And, and, uh, I think I was, I think I was hunting elk with a bow by age 14, but I, I, I shot my first couple of elk with a gun, you know, um, I, I think I did shoot my first elk, my first year of hunting, which was 12 years old in Idaho. So pretty early start and just fell in love with those stinky elk, uh, hopelessly. Yeah. It doesn't, uh, it doesn't get old, man. <laughs> no. And so, well, background on you as a dad and a like a husband and working in the hunting industry, all that, man. So how long have you been uh, married? How old are your boys? And then how long have you been in the hunting industry? You know, I was really blessed. I'll talk about the career first, but I was really blessed when um, Dan Evans from formerly Trophy Taker, now Option Archery, um, he and I went to grade school together. And then when he started his archery company, um, I had a I had a background, I had a business education, and um, he asked me to come manage his company. And so I kind of fell into that. It's like pushing 20 years ago now uh, that I've been in the hunting industry in some way, shape, or form. Um, going back further than that, my wife and I have been married this year 26 years and, uh, and counting. I think she still likes me most days and I definitely like her most days. So uh, I feel pretty blessed in the marriage. And then, you know, we had two boys. We started our marriage really young. She was 18 and I was 22 when we got married. So um, against all odds, we um, found somebody that we really liked in spite of the, in spite of what statistics would say about that decision-making process. Mm-hmm. And, uh, then a few years later, we had our first boy and and then uh, our second followed a couple of years later. So now those, my boys are 22 and 20, respectively. Um, my youngest got married this summer, uh, which is crazy. Um, he found himself a beautiful little curly haired blonde girl that's just full of spice and energy and we love her to pieces. So the family's growing here pretty soon. I'll probably wind up being a granddad and I don't even know how to reconcile that. Mm, that's going to be awesome, man. Grandparents can... Are, did the kids live close to you? Uh, no, we, you know, I moved down here to Cedar City, Utah. Um, when I took the job at Hunt and Fool, I was working, uh, I was traveling and commuting from our home in Montana. And then 
uh, after my youngest graduated high school, my wife and I both moved down here to be close to this job. So it's like a 12 hour drive to get back up to Bozeman where both of them are in college. Um, so we don't see them as often as we'd like, but you know, they're at that stage of life too, where they've got a lot going on, you know, jobs and young marriage and all kinds of fun stuff. So, um, I don't think that they're laying around pining away to see mom and dad. No, but they will when they have kids and they need babysitting, specifically the best kind of babysitting, you know, um, they're going to stay the night tonight. Uh, okay, grandpa. And so mom and dad are going to have a night out. That's, uh, the best. I'm looking uh, forward to that. That's going to be great, man. Well, so yeah, you took the job with Hunt and Full and then you became the CEO. You're the big dog there. You're running. So we got to dive right into Hunt and Full. Let's get into what is Hunting Full, kind of the history of it, and what is it doing today currently? Okay. Yeah, no, this is the 25th year uh, of business, uh, which is pretty amazing um, for any company to survive that long. And particularly in this space, um, you have to provide real value, I think, in order to succeed long-term in the hunting space. Because there's a lot of people, you know, Dan, and you and I both have been fortunate to uh, be able to make some of our living or most of our living in the hunting space off and on. And Um, I feel blessed in that regard, but there's a lot of people that try that because it sounds like the, you know, the impossible dream and all all too often it is the impossible dream. So Hunt Fool's been around for 25 years and honestly, you know, we try to distill everything that we do down to just one simple kind of mission statement and that is we just try to help people go on more hunts with the best possible information available. And, uh, you know, that information can range from gear um, you know, should I, you know, when, when it, it, let's face it, clothing alone is getting so out of control expense wise that you don't want to go throwing money around recklessly and buy gear that doesn't work or doesn't fit or doesn't function the way you want it to. So, you know, we pride ourselves on testing a wide range of gear, um, all the way down to hunting unit selection. And even, you know, when possible, we'll literally hand over the spots that we ourselves have put our own boots on. So, um, but yeah, it's in essence, we want more people to go on more hunts with better information. Okay. Well, we're going to come back to hunting full and get into basically the application season, which is upon us. And, uh, it's not a better time to have you on. So, uh, it was super easy to get this scheduled with you, by the way. Well, <laughs> I think that's sarcasm. I'm thinking. <laughs> no, it's all good. See your face here, which I wish we were sitting down uh, over a table doing this podcast, but I, I'm guessing that was sarcasm. Yeah, a little bit. Man, you're busy. Um, well, let's talk about 2019. It's in the past. How did your elk season go for you? You know, it went awesome. Um, I increasingly enjoy hunts that provide me new experiences. Um, and and that includes uh, new new country, new terrain, new species, et cetera. And um, I was fortunate enough, again, due to my position here with Hunt and Fool, to go on a grizzly bear hunt. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna bypass elk real quick, um, just because it segues into it. But um, yeah, I went on a grizzly bear hunt, which is a hunt I never thought I'd be able to do in my entire life, you know, price wise and everything else. But I was able to kind of work out a uh, a nitty gritty trade with an outfitter and help a couple of fully paid clients get get their grizzly bears killed first and then I had a few days to back clean up with my bow while I while we were waiting for a for a transporter to pick us up and and managed to kill a great bear with my bow um so that was like a you know lifetime dream for me so that actually took me into elk season which is why I mentioned that and normally I wouldn't ever sacrifice a day of elk season but when we talk 
giant bears like a grizzly bear. I'm going to sacrifice all day, every day for that. So, um, and then I had, I had a Montana tag and an Idaho tag this year. Um, and I killed a decent bull in Idaho, um, on the last day of my hunt there and, and, uh, filled the freezer, which I like to do regularly. And, and then Montana, I ate my tag. I was looking for a, a big bull and, uh, I had a 900 dash 20 tag, which is a multi-region tag in Montana where you can hunt a bunch of different units with a wide range of habitat from literally desert kind of lowland habitat all the way up to, you know, uh, the crazy mountain peaks and all that kind of stuff. So, um, I did find a really big bull on a, a little section and a half of public land. I was hunting some checkerboard stuff. And, uh, unfortunately the, he and I never were on that piece of property on the same day. I could glass him from about six miles away. And then it was, uh, about a six and a half mile walk one way to get into the back to where he had to kind of hunt this bull from the, for the wind. And a lot of his other buddies were on that when I would get in there, but he was always off on private whenever, <laughs> whenever I was within striking distance. So, um, anyway, I ate my tag there in Montana, just looking for a big one and had a great hunt, but we had a bitter, bitter cold front come in this year, uh, which has been happening more and more. I usually hunt Montana in October, which is something, you know, it's probably noteworthy on this podcast. Um, Montana's archery season goes six weeks and runs clear into mid October. And, uh, I love hunting elk in October. Every elk I've killed in Montana, I've killed in October. I've not killed an elk in September in Montana with my bow. So, um, it gets you away from the crowd a little bit, but it does, does subject you to below zero temps occasionally. No, we have a lot to go over there. So number one, um, I have never killed an elk in Montana in September either. Never. And it's all October, and we've talked about that on the podcast before, which unfortunately, it is what it is, guys. The secret's out. It's really good there. People are out of vacation time. People are like, ah, oh, we're close to rifle. I'll just wait for rifle. And the weather usually sucks at some point in October. And those bulls have been pressured quite a bit, but it seems like they've kind of get a break, and that second estrus rolls in. So, yeah, honestly, it's pretty darn good early October. Uh, brown bear grizzly bear you hunted a grizzly bear was it an interior yeah so um you know as you know grizzly and brown bear are basically the same species it's just one eats salmon and one eats twigs and berries and has to hibernate longer so <laughs> um but this particular strain of grizzly i was up on the no attack river uh, way north of the arctic circle up north of kotzebue and um really overpopulated with grizzly bears right now residents can kill two grizzlies a year wow and they're actually talking about going to five grizzlies a year per resident um so it was a phenomenal hunt it was uh you know flying to kotzebue jump on a 206 fly an hour and a half to a gravel bar on the no attack then jump in a super cub and land on top of a little blueberry covered knob way up in the interior of alaska it's just uh, unreal like i get goosebumps talking about it because those are the kind of hunts that i increasingly love to go on oh i would be lying if i didn't say like my number one bucket list hunt is a alaska brown bear uh with a bow and you know, even interior grizz is pretty up, like pretty high up there. Uh, just what an incredible animal. And you're a avid, avid spring black bear hunter. Uh, if you guys get a chance, scroll through his Instagram. I hope you have some of your bears posted on there, but you've killed some slob Montana black bears. So I know you love bears, but what fascinates you about bears in general? 
Well, for one, you know, they're the oldest living animal that we can hunt here, um, at least in, in the kind of stuff that we hunt in North America. I, I can't speak. I'm not a wildlife biologist, so I, I better be careful what I'm saying and, and qualify that. But, you know, bears will live up to 30 years in the wild, you know, which is about twice as long as an elk will live. And I just think they develop uh, an intelligence and an experience level that is sort of unmatched in the wildlife species that I can hunt. Um, and they also have personalities. Um, and quite frankly, the, the first reason I fell in love with spring bear hunting is because I love to hunt and it gave me an extra season. I like hunting turkeys too, but if I can throw big game in there, um, I started getting really passionate. I think in 2004 is when I really kind of went all in on, I, I was like, I got to figure out how to kill these bears with a bow spot and stock. And, uh, yeah, since then I've had a lot of fortune, a good fortune to bump into a lot of big bears in the spring. Yeah, we well, spring bear for me is the same deal. Like those animals are incredible. And yeah, they do have a credible age class, but more importantly, they like they are survivalists, Jared. Like they are incredible. If you can study the bears and figure out their variety of uh, diet and their dietary intake and just where they get nutrition from, it's almost mind-blowing. And then if you dig in on their hibernation and really what goes on there, it's like there's nothing else like it. Um, and spring bear is pretty good as far as the meat goes. I haven't ever – I've never ate a fall bear, but I've I've ate several spring bears, and I've found them to be amazing as far as just nutrition content, density, low fat, just awesome. And not greasy and stinky, just really some of the best meat out there in my opinion. Yeah, no, the difference between skinning a spring bear and a fall bear is is mind-blowing to your point on hibernation and what they're doing to prepare for that. So the fall, it gets pretty – pretty greasy and nasty. You feel like you're rolled around in a gallon of Crisco by the time you get one skin. But in the spring, you're absolutely right. They're clean. Um, there's hardly any fat. Um, it's a, they're just a, a really unique, interesting animal. Uh, a couple more questions on spring bear. So I know from just knowing you, you were doing a lot of walking, gated old logging roads where some of the best grass grows, remote country on a mountain bike and working the wind and literally just finding bear sign and getting spot and stock literally almost like literally oh there you are and then go kill go smash them so take us through like some of your best practices when it comes to spring bear hunting yeah you know i learned a lot of lessons those first few years because i was going to places where i could glass a long ways and in particular a lot of times i was glassing in cliffs you know because those those cliff faces tend to green up the earliest the sun catches them really hard the rock holds heat and you get all these green little benches. And then I would see a bear, you know, a mile or two away. And then I'd make a big play on the bear and get over there and never see the bear again. You know, um, if I was lucky, I'd hear it run off. And that was about it. And so I was like, man, I got to change the game a little bit. And and so what I finally realized is that bears, for the most part, live a pretty small life. Um, they find an ideal spot to be, uh, particularly big boars, the ones that I want to hunt live a pretty small life. They stake out an ideal patch of food. They've always got water nearby. Always, always, always. There's no exceptions to that rule unless they're in the rut, which doesn't happen until, you know, really late in May and, and into mid-June. But they're going to be close to good water sources and great feed. And so I started realizing that I was better off just getting the wind in my face and, and just living where the bears wanted to live too. And so, yeah, I, honestly, many of my biggest bears I didn't see until moments before I shot him with a bow, um, whether I was still hunting on like, you know, steep 
kind of snow fields where the glacier lily and that kind of stuff, ferns and all that grows uh, when the snow first comes off or whether I was doing it on a gated logging road all too often um, my best bears, you know, literally it's like, Oh, there he is. Get a range, you know, get an arrow in him. <laughs> so mm, what's the closest you've got on a stock and made the shot? I actually shot my biggest bear at 11 yards. Um, and I'll, I'll be honest and share with the listeners. Cause I think as bow hunters, we owe it to each other to tell the truth. I missed a bear at 20 yards about 30 seconds before I killed this bear at 11 yards. Um, I, it turned out that these two, it was two boars that were kind of, it was late May, it was May 31st. It was the last day of the hunt at, in that particular unit that year. And, uh, these two boars had gotten a coral that I didn't know about. And again, I was, I was just sneaking into a meadow where I typically saw bears doing my typical thing, wind in my face, just going in real easy. And all of a sudden I see a bear coming through the timber at me. I'm like, Oh my gosh, this is great. You know? And anyway, the wheels kind of fell off the bus cause this bear came in and you know, turned broadside at about 18 yards in the, in the, th it was, I say thick timber, but it was all overstory. It was really clear underneath, except for I was standing under a white fur that had some big dead limbs. And I was afraid my bow was going to hit him when I drew. And anyway, long story short, I, I was putting pressure on the back of my knock with my release, subconsciously trying to avoid these limbs above me. And when I drew and the bear turned broadside, my arrow fell off and I was shooting a, you know, a trophy taker arrow rest, full capture and the arrow, you know, harmlessly bounced forward and hung up in my arrow rest while mental midgetry kicked in immediately. And I started, you know, the wheels start coming off the bus. You go into panic mode. You're like, Oh no, you know, I mean, he's going to get away. All the things that a bow hunter should not ever think or let themselves get trapped in. So I let down, pulled the arrow back on, came back to full draw. The bear still had no clue I was there, but I, I had let it become a problem. Anyway, I didn't even get my 20 yard pin up to the fur before I smoked my trigger and <laughs> shot right under his chest. And, uh, you know, and you're literally, and, and the funny thing is the bear ha was so clueless about where I was. The arrow hit right beyond, right beyond him on a hard log and it spooked the bear toward me. So the bear comes running by me at about four yards, right on the other side of the tree that kind of screwed me up. And I'm in the, you know, you're in that mode where you're thinking about falling on your own arrow because you're so mad at yourself for, you know, it was last night of the bear season. I had about an hour of daylight left. And of course I, I knocked another arrow real quick, thankfully, because I'm turning to try to see if I can pick up the bear that I just missed in the timber behind me. And all of a sudden I hear brush breaking coming right at me and I turn around and there's a bigger bear at a dead run right on the trail I'm on. And of course I ripped my bow back and he stopped at 11 yards and kind of puffed up like in that posture they do when they're, they don't know what you are, but they're wanting to look as big as they can. And anyway, I ended up shooting him at 11 yards and it was my biggest bear ever. So, um, there's your mental midget. Well, one of many moments I've had in the woods. I love it, dude. Um, bears are cool when you talk about numbers a little bit. Um, I'm not huge into score on other animals per se a little bit, but not obsessed, but with bears, I like stats. So your biggest bear, like how big was his stride? Did you ever see any of his tracks to see how big his, his, how wide his paws were? And what did you think he weighed spring weight, which people overestimate, but, um, skull size, if you ever measured him, what, what, how does teeth look like? Stuff like that. Yeah, no, he was in a prime. I would say he was probably like a 10 year old bear. You know, he wasn't a super old bear, but he was in his prime for sure. Cause his teeth were in really good shape. Um, skull, he was like a 19 and three eighths inch skull. Mm -hmm. Um, which is a big Montana bear, you know. Um, Indeed. 
not a giant, but he's definitely a big bear. And then um, we squared him out, which of course that's less than scientific. Let's be honest; most <laughs> you can get a lot of different measures. You give it, give a guy a bear and ask ten guys to square him, you're going to get ten different measurements. But I got six eleven and some change out of him, so just under a seven foot bear square. Um, and then a weight wise, I wouldn't even venture a guess because, like you, it's way easy to overguess them. I think they're way lighter than you think they are, um, honestly. At the end of the day, so. You know, he was probably um, less than 300 pounds, even though it was a you know a big bear. Yeah, could you uh, could you move him at all when he was dead? No, um, I mean other than rolling him down the hill until I got him close to a log that it made it a little easier to skin him because he he died on a really steep face. Um, no, he's one of those where bears are weird, as you know. They they don't have connections like deer and elk do, like with stiff legs where you can kind of manipulate him. Like you grab a front paw on a bear and you yank as hard as you can, and it gives about 18 inches of slack and then pulls itself back exactly where it was. So, oh, I know. God. No, he was big enough. He was hard to move. Yeah, there's a, there's a few bears out there we've killed that uh, we thought were like, oh, it's a good bear. But then when we try to move them, it takes two people. And that's kind of our way of telling if it's a really big bear. My, uh, my dad's wife, she's my stepmom, she shot a giant Neanderthal bear one year. And, dude, we couldn't move it between her and I, and this is an Idaho bear. It's the biggest bear anyone's killed in our camp ever. And I just remember like, Oh, that's a good bear. I, I couldn't even tell on the ground. I was like, yeah, this is a good bear. Let's, let's move it up to the road so we can skin it. And we couldn't. And in fact, she had a winch on her four wheeler and we broke the winch trying to get the bear up to the road. This is a giant. And then we eventually got the bear whole on top of her four wheeler and we he broke sh the uh, not the struts but this broke something on our four wheel I can't remember what getting it out the boots everything on the front end so they're they can get really big but I bet that bear didn't weigh I don't know I'm guessing 300 pounds but it's just pure muscle and dead weight and especially a spring bear there's no fat on them it's incredible they're pretty amazing predators they they don't get a lot of street credit for being an omnivore and and the bears I hunt in North Idaho, the same ones that you were hunting in Western Montana, man, their their actual meat intake, protein intake from animal flesh is super low until it's not. I mean, it's incredible that they can get so big eating all those huckleberries, the the grasses, and then grubbing and, and all the different variety of food. And then, you know, kind of come fall, well, actually spring, I think they're pretty hard on elk calves, in my opinion, moose calves. Uh, have you seen any of those studies that they kind of started figuring out how proficient bears were at not only procuring calves and fawns, but like how fast they could consume them? Yeah, no, it's scary how fast they can consume them. Um, but yeah, again, you think about it, you got an animal that gets, you know, 20 years of experience under his or her belt um, at, and one or two successes. It's like us as bow hunters, right? Like I'm a way better bow hunter today than I was, you know, when I was 15 or 20 years old. Um, a lot of that just has to do with experience and those bears are that they got to eat to live and they get very good at cleaning up protein where they can find it. And calves are vulnerable. Definitely. So we're going to touch on elk and then get into the application season. Man, like when you're out there in Idaho and Montana looking for, I mean, that's a pretty sweet Montana tag you had, quite honestly. Were you, are you kind of a spot and stock guy, I, an ambush guy? Do you call much? Do, do you have several tricks in your bag? Like how would you classify your style of elk hunting? 
<laughs> well, I'm gonna I'm gonna say some things against calling, so I'm gonna disclaim before I say that that I love to call elk. It's it. I literally grew up cutting my teeth on it. It's the most fun thing on planet Earth is to call in a stinky old bull elk. Um, but having said that, I think too often for me, and I won't speak for the rest of the elk hunting population, but for me, I got in a habit early on of of it being my shortcut. It's kind of like um, working out, you know, you with like elk shape or whatever else. When we take shortcuts and we get used to it, um, we forget to refine the rest of our skill set. And it wasn't until, you know, I really started wanting to kill that next age class of bull with a bow that I realized, you know, and I did call in a few. In fact, the biggest bull I've ever killed, I called in. But um, having said that, the majority of big bulls are not very callable. And so I realized I needed to go back to the drawing board and refine my skill set. And now I have a really simple mantra that I practice in my head when I'm, you know, particularly as I'm closing the gap. It's one thing when I'm hearing a bull bugle a mile away. It's another thing when I'm starting to get in that 300 yard or less zone. I just kind of repeat to myself, you know, is all you got to do is get as close as you can for as long as you can. And um, that is good for whether you're going to try a call or not because too many people call from too far away and they just keep you know the elk keeps answering so they think that the elk is interested but really they're just kind of communicating and the elk's moving away moving away moving away and they you know i i used to move elk three or four drainages doing that um i'm embarrassed to say so yeah i guess i tell myself hey your job is real simple is all you got to do is get as close as you can for as long as you can and good things will happen and of course that means being quiet and of course that means having the wind in your face um, and paying attention to all the things that make a woodsman um, or a woods person. And so that increasingly becomes my number one. And then the calls become something where occasionally I will use them uh, because they do work if used in the right scenario. And, and uh, you know, if you can sound like an elk, which I'd argue is the least important part of it, believe it or not. I mean, sounding like an elk is great, but I hear elk make a lot of weird noises and it's more about tone, volume, cadence, timing, uh, frequency, all of that kind of stuff. Wow, there it is. I couldn't agree more, man. If you were to like graph all the elk I've killed and the size of the bull, basically it's an inverse relationship. The, the more I call, the less maturity or size you can see as far as the elk goes. And it's just the more I, you know, it's just one of those deals where if you call a lot, you're going to bring in satellites and stuff like that that are very tempting and the more I sneak, the you know, the bigger the bull and stuff like that. So I'll tell you what though, Jared, we we gotta talk about some of the things that you have picked up when it comes to archery nuances as far as there's always stuff coming out, there's always new technology, but like tried and true your specific archery setup, like what products are on your rig right now and why? Like I wanna dig in because you're a very accomplished archer. You can shoot lights out, you always have been a good shot. Tell me about your current archery setup and kind of why things are on there. Yeah, and I'd be a liar if I said I think I have it all figured out, right? I mean, every year I kind of dink around a little bit with my setup, but less and less over time. Um, I think partly that has to do with confidence that the equipment really isn't going to kill the elk. I'm going to have to do my job, right? I, you know, Because I know guys that are lethal on elk that shoot a 300-grain arrow super fast, super light, not much FOC, and they kill elk every year, like religiously. And then I know the other side of the coin where guys are, you know, 700 grain arrow or bust and 160 grain tip and whatever. And and so I think that, 
you know, you have to do something that works well for you. And for me personally, um, I like to balance between the fastest arrow I can shoot that's still in a range of heaviness that tunes well, because I do hunt Idaho pretty much every year. I have a lifetime Idaho hunting license. And uh, in Idaho, of course, as you know, fixed or mechanical broadheads are illegal. So when you put a wing on the front of your arrow, the faster you shoot that wing, the more prone it is to being unforgiving. I mean, that's just a fact. And so throwing a fixed blade head out front on my arrows means that I want to shoot an arrow that's a little bit slower overall than, than just going strictly for speed. So I usually try to be somewhere around 280 to 300 feet a second with my setup. Um, and of course I'm an average, uh, draw length. I've got a 29 inch draw length and, and, uh, I don't want to get into too much technical stuff on the archery side here, but for those that don't know, basically every inch of draw length that you gain or lose you're going to gain 10 feet a second if if I shoot a 29-inch uh, setup identical to your 30-inch setup. You're going to shoot about 10 second or 10 feet a second faster than me just because you have a longer um, uh, draw length. So again, keep in mind that this is Jared Lyle at 29 inches. If you're a 26-inch draw length, there's some differences here, and if you're a 31, there's differences. But having said that, I like a 400 to 460 grain arrow. Um, I like a fixed blade head because again, I have to shoot it in Idaho and I don't want to mess around from setup to setup. And then I do take a lot of time, you know, with bare shaft tuning. Um, I think that's something that's important. Um, I don't worry about it as much getting a perfect clean hole through paper with my bare shaft. Although typically when I'm done tuning, it will still do that. But what I'm really doing at 20 yards, I want a bare shaft and a, and a flat shaft to basically hit left to right identical to each other. And if you get really anal, you can put, you know, some wrap on the bare shaft to represent the weight of the veins. And then you can try to get them to actually hit kind of the same hole. But for me, usually my bare, bare shaft will hit slightly high on my flat shaft. And then at that point, I usually can screw on a good fixed blade head, you know, with a good balanced arrow and have essentially field tip accuracy with my setup. So, and I'm shooting this year, I shot a Matthews Traverse um, at 70 pounds, 29 inch draw, 450 green arrow, 281 feet a second. And man, it shot lights out, Dan. Um, so I, I do like extra FOC. Again, if you're putting a wing up front, man, I don't, I'm going down a rabbit trail here on you. You mm -hmm. can feel free to shut me down if this you want to. This is what I'm into. <laughs> but guys, you know, a lot of times if you think about like putting a grapefruit in a tube sock and throwing it, you know, the grapefruit, of course, is going to lead the way and the, the light part of the tube sock is going to flap along behind it. And the same thing's true for FOC. That's the best way I can describe it because it, it is science. It's undeniable physics that extra weight up front is going to help your, your arrow be more stable in flight. Um, but visualizing that always helps me understand why. So I put I do run a lot of FOC. I put a 60 grain in, uh, stainless steel insert up front, and then I run a 125 grain head. So I try to get most of my arrow weight up in the front part of the shaft and you know um i'm probably overkill there's a lot of guys that are better shots than i am that would argue that it's overkill but it feels good between my ears so that's what i'm running right now do you still run any trophy taker products yep i shoot the trophy taker smackdown arrow rest still i still think it's the simplest follow away arrow rest on the market and i like limb driven rests over cable driven rests just for tuning reasons um for servicing them in the field if something goes wrong you know, you, you, there's no timing issues with the length of the cord. You just mash the arrow rest launcher down and 
pull the cord tight and you're good to go again. So there's a lot of reasons I do that. Um, and then, you know, option archery, Dan converted, uh, he sold the trophy taker brand and started option. And I run the Quivalizer and the option, uh, site because I love how they both solve problems. The option site to me is a game changer. Like it's the best of both worlds because it combines your fixed pins and a movable pin into one configuration um, in a way that no other site on the market has done or does today. There you go, guys. Uh, I love everything you said there, man. Uh, I think the option stuff, I've tried it. I'm really impressed. I think it comes in, like when I first got my hands on it, there was like an option four and an option six or something, but I think it's all customizable now, and that's great. And uh, I got nothing but great things to say about Dan Evans, except he never comes on this podcast, even though I have his cell phone number and bug the crap out of him. <laughs> hey, let's get him together. I think it might take both of us, but let's try it. Do you know how awesome that would be to learn from him? The guy's the uh, just incredible elk hunter, incredible human being. Anyways, I digress. Um, and then the other thing you said about you know just shooting a lot of heavy front of center and stuff like that, I couldn't agree more. The bear shaft... Everything you're doing is like just what it takes to be successful. I run limb driven. I got away from that bus cable just because of in the field tuning because stuff happens in the field and it's super easy just to take a peek at your error rest and be like, oh crap, I need to tighten it back down or whatever. But um, when it comes to releases, what what release aids do you use during hunting season? I've been shooting a Carter and again, I credit Dan Evans for this too because he, you know, he's shops around more than anybody I know when it comes to finding the right equipment. And the Carter triggers are just unreal. If you're going to shoot an index trigger and, and try to shoot it back tension style, like not command style, but actually, you know, try to pull through your shot. I love the Carters cause I can get that trigger deep into my second knuckle mm -hmm. and I can use, you know, kind of clench my shoulders to help the shot go off instead of just, you know, hammering on it with my index finger. So, um, yeah, I shoot a Carter and love them. Okay. Well, I am excited to break down application season a little bit. I don't know if I'll be able to get you back on here. You are the CEO, you are busy, but we're going to kind of start with Wyoming, but first let's kind of give the background on what Hunt and Full has to offer because there's lots of options out there, guys, and we got the man himself right here. You guys have been out longer than anybody. I know you have an army that works for you of hunt advisors and research analysts, and it's just so much information to sift through, and you guys dumb it down for us so where we can just know what we need to know and move on. What else does Hunt and Full provide besides just... Um, basic information you guys do application service and other things break that down for us uh you bet well no i think from a main membership point of view um you get 12 issues a year of a magazine that's basically bifurcated into two sections so from january through june you're going to get real-time tracking with the application periods that are open or about to open to tell you how to apply how much it is to apply should you apply what unit should you apply for etc so we we have about 130 pages per issue on average um, that is literally dedicated like right now our january issue is just going in the mail and it's all about wyoming elk uh, Wyoming moose, sheep, goat, and bison, because those two periods open very, you know, Wyoming elk is open 
and the moose, goat, sheep, and bison as soon. And then Arizona elk and pronghorn because that's going to be rolling right up here real fast too. So um, we try to track real time for six months on sort of like uh, what you you can you can look, but you can't necessarily touch because it's a long game. And then the other six months out of the year, we try to focus on hunts you should be doing every year. Things that you can either do over the counter or you can do in less than three years. So you can get on a rotation where, say, you can hunt Colorado, Montana, Idaho, and leapfrog around so that you're not sitting around waiting to draw that tag of a lifetime. So the magazine is a huge resource to our members. That's probably the number one benefit. It also is published online through our EMAG, um, available only to members. And then Hunt Advisors, there's nine of us that work full-time for the company that uh, are on demand. Um, I mean, not literally on demand, but occasionally if you ask me and you say, the only time you can call me is 10 p.m., I've done it before. But for the most part, our members call. We handle over 10,000 calls a year at this point in time with uh, people that are asking, again, those gear questions, what unit should I apply for? We get tons of questions like, hey, I'm from Minnesota. I want to do my first elk hunt. Um, can you help me pick a unit? Um, what you know? What places are available, et cetera? So um, that consultation benefit, it's unlimited. You can call in as many times as you want. And again, we process just thousands and thousands of calls that way. And then we have a member draw database, which is really valuable. We've got 20 plus years of about 22,000 records of, of hunters who have drawn limited entry tags, who have opted into this database, which means if you, Dan Staten, draw a good tag in Nevada or Arizona or Utah, you can call us up as a Huntful member and say, hey, can you give me the list of people who have had this tag before me? And then we send you their name and email and uh, cell number, and you can hop on the phone. And a lot of times these guys will come camp with you. They'll share trail cam photos because a lot of these tags are on long rotations. So those are the main uh benefits as a member. Um, and then like you mentioned, a separate part of our business, we actually, for people who are too busy or too intimidated for the draw process, um, we do, um, thousands of applications a year on behalf of our licensed application clients, which is just like a concierge service. And those clients also have access to the hunt advisors to ask questions like, Hey, you know, what, what should I apply in Colorado for elk and deer or sheep or whatever? So, that's kind of a high level of what we do. Again, always netting it down to the to the broth, if you will, of we want you to go on more hunts with the best possible information to make the most of your time in the field. Well, I can't believe that people have unlimited access to nine hunt nerd advisors, the people that are in the trenches. And then you guys also as a company mandate that they try new areas every year. And these these folks are learning and learning and learning, getting boots on the ground, trying you, you want that if you're going to talk to somebody and get mentored by somebody who's been there, done that, and tried new things. That's cool. Uh, Online-wise, digitally, do you guys have your uh, magazine available digitally, and do you still have that a portfolio that you can kind of keep on your uh, back end of your website? Yeah. In fact, we just launched a brand new website in October um, after a lot of years of trying to improve it. And we're super happy about it. We're still working on it every single day, literally. But so there is portfolio manage on, management on there. One misconception um, in a lot of portfolio management sites right now is that maybe when I put my points in, then they'll track real time as I apply. And the reality is the states have mostly gone to these CAPTCHA hidden um separate third-party logins with heavy security. So really the only way to manage your points is if you yourself manage them. I mean, we do it for our license application clients. We log in on their behalf. We take complete care of their portfolio. But our members who want to use that 
that function our functionality and put their goals in and their points and everything else they have to manually look them up each year on the state website and then dump them into their hunt and full portfolio but uh and we also have a free app on google play and the app store it's got like a 4.8 rating and um, we haven't solicited one of those reviews it's really just honestly a reminder service more than anything else it's free you download it you subscribe to the things you're interested in you know draw deadlines application period open and closes uh, draw result notifications etc and we send you push notifications to that app um so you know it's one way to kind of get a little bit familiar with hunt and fool and the types of things that we focus on wow i'm impressed and there's some competition out there so what would you say differentiates you guys if you had to distill it down to a couple things well, again, I think first and foremost, the consultation component is huge. Um, I have nine full-time employees that are um, amazing individuals and human beings, but they're also incredible hunters. And we feel blessed to have that opportunity. Um, I wouldn't have anybody on our team that didn't wake up every morning and pinch themselves and go, oh my gosh, I'm so thankful to be a Hunt and Fool Hunt Advisor. And that sort of feeling, in my opinion, carries over into how we take care of the members when they call in. And so that personalized service, well, and back to what you said, you know, um, each of my hunt advisors does have a hunting budget and 50% of that budget they don't get unless they spend it on brand new hunts they've never done in areas that you can draw with less than three points. Um, and most cases it's over the counter. All my guys usually have three to five tags that you can obtain either over the counter or with very little weight in the draw system every year. Um, so we, we hunt dozens of new places every year. We do that as an incentive to be able to help other people plan their hunts in the same areas. And uh, so I think the consultation element definitely is a, is a unique an incredible service that we offer for a hundred bucks a year to get the magazine that and all of our our digital portfolio i think it's a pretty good value um other things that set us aside you know i will say this i think the other thing that really sets us aside again to kind of tell um tag on to those hunt advisors we operate with about 500 outfitters in north america that we've worked with for decades and we book them a lot of hunts every year and we ask very little of that. We, we, most of them don't even pay us. Um, and they don't have to, it's kind of a volunteer system and we do get a referral commission from some, but it's very, very small compared to the millions of dollars of hunts that we book. And so we use those guys as our in the field biologists when we're writing like a state section like Wyoming or, you know, Oregon or whatever. Um, we'll spend a couple hundred hours per hunted, well, the hunt advisor that's in charge of that particular state on any given year will spend a couple hundred hours in research through state websites, state wildlife biologists, our own members who hunted the hunts last year, and most important, the outfitters who are literally living in those units for months on end during hunting season. So um, most other services that I know of don't have that in the field resource because they don't have that symbiotic relationship with outfitters like we do. So those are, I think those are the two things I would say, Dan. Okay, well, there you go, guys. Let's talk about Wyoming. It's here. I haven't put in yet. A uh, little disappointed to see that new law come out or new rule that they instated. Let's go ahead and go over that first. Yeah, no, Wyoming really pulled. Uh, the last several years, Wyoming has literally spun off the rails from our point of view in terms of 
how they treat the customer. Um, and and the, let's face it, the non-resident revenue is a critical component to their success. And they're literally kind of pooping down the necks of non-residents. So in the past, as you know, Dan, we've been able to apply for Wyoming. I loved it because you apply January 1 to 31. And then by end of February, you usually have your draw results out. This is for elk. I'm talking strictly elk here. Um, and so you can kind of plan the rest of your application season. It's like, hey, I got a Wyoming tag in my pocket. Do I even want another tag? Mm-hmm. Um, or do I save all my application money for the rest of the year and just save it for gas and scouting to go you know, kill a bull in Wyoming? Um, and now this year, they couldn't get their ducks in a row to figure out what they wanted to do for seasons on their proclamation. They always release them late, like mid-December is when they kind of release their actual uh, you know, um, opportunities their actual elk opportunities. And they said, well, what we're going to do, we're going to kick that can down the road. We're still going to make you apply in January and we're going to take your money, but you, you literally may apply for a hunt that might not even exist when we release the actual hunts in May. Now they're going to let you have an opportunity to edit your application at that point, you know, prior to the draw coming out, once we finally have the right information. But meanwhile, Wyoming charges your credit card up front the full price for the tag as if you had it they charge you a two and a half percent credit card processing convenience fee and they're going to hang on to your money in a category where you don't even know if you applied for a hunt that's going to exist that probably will there's not a ton of changes usually in wyoming but it's still a real egregious way of handling this um and then finally if you in wyoming as you know dan there's special and regular elk tags. And it's just a price difference. You know, people kind of get confused, but it's it's literally Wyoming said, hey, you know, let's set 40% of our tags aside for people who are willing to pay more for the same exact tag. And so this special regular dilemma, when it comes time to edit your application, if you apply regular, they will not let you switch to special and vice versa. So even though you can edit it, you still have to edit it in the same price category that you applied in which is a bummer too, because once you finally understand what hunts are available, you may want to switch so that you could be, have maybe a higher draw odds. So that's kind of a high level view of what they've done to us from the elk. I don't know if you want to add anything to that, Dan, or if you heard anything else. No, I I don't. I think uh, it's frustrating for me personally, because I did burn all my Wyoming points last year. And uh, so, you know, I like the idea of getting a Wyoming general tag at the very least. I think it's a good it's a good state to hunt. Obviously, a guy like me is pretty committed, so I'd be probably with zero points be willing to do a special, you know, price point for five hundred dollars more. To me, it might be worth it, but uh, for them to hold on to it for five months, that's a lot of like twelve hundred bucks is on their credit card. I'm the kind of guy that's going to not ha- carry a balance on my credit card, so they're going to make a lot of interest off me and everybody else. It adds up quickly. Let me ask you this. So in years prior and going forward now, do they ascertain all the stats, result, uh, all the harvest reports and then do their, you know, flyovers and figure out, you know, how the elk are doing and how many tags and what they can actually do in years past? Or is this a move to maybe have a better understanding of the elk numbers going forward? Or is everything set in stone from this point going forward? What's that look like? Well, first of all, in our job, we've realized there's nothing that's ever set in stone. Uh, Amen to that. Yeah. So I I doubt that this will be a permanent change at all. In fact, next year, what I anticipate is the second uh, uh, proposition you had there, and that is that they're trying to get better data 
under their belt before they set season dates and quotas. And so I think next year we might see the entire elk application period get shoved back another month or so. Total supposition on my part, based on just strictly a hunch. I want to clarify that. But, you know, I think that they're going to get enough pushback and enough of their own. They're going to create their own problem, all these applications that are going to have to be edited and everything else. So I think that they're probably going to push it back next year. I think they just got caught too late in the game and made a rash decision to still leave the application period open, take everybody's money, sit on their, you know, make interest off of them. And, uh, and I think next year we'll see a change. So let me ask you this. Let's say I put my application in for Wyoming and I know I'm not going to find out my results till May. Let's say I pull an Arizona tag and I pull a Montana tag and now I'm looking at draw results for Wyoming. Can I pull out of the Wyoming draw and switch to points only before, even though I've already paid the full amount up front? No, I don't believe you're going to be able to do that. That's actually an excellent question. I did not write Wyoming. Robert Hanneman did for us. Um, I'll have to verify that. Maybe we can put it in the notes or comments or something. But I am, I'm like 99% sure you will not be able to switch to points only. Um, you know, and that's another good point in Wyoming that a lot of guys got caught on last year. Last year, Wyoming did another dumb stunt, and they eliminated the option to buy your your preference point in the application period. A lot of people assume that they applied for a tag, checked all the boxes and that they got their preference point. But if you didn't go back in July one through October 31 during the preference point only period, you didn't get a point last year in Wyoming, even if you applied in the draw, they made it impossible to get a point in the draw last year. Why would you do that? That is the dumbest thing. Uh, we are literally scratching our heads with Wyoming's decision-making processes the last few years. Uh, it literally, you know, we, we compare against, we, we write up 21 different states. And honestly, Wyoming has us more puzzled than anybody the last couple of years. Roger that. Well, let's talk about Wyoming from a portfolio standpoint. Like, is Wyoming one of those states you should just try to get a general and burn points year after year? Is it worth saving up five five, six years and getting one of the limited quotas. And then what are the nuances with, um, briefly, just kind of an overview of like, okay, you get a general tag, but do you have an archery stamp? Okay, you can hunt archery the 1st to the 30th, or, but, you know, you can also come back for a general rifle, uh, limited quota, there's a type nine, like, can you kind of brush over just kind of an overview of Wyoming? You bet. First of all, I'll say that Wyoming is a must apply for for elk. If you're a non-resident seeking elk hunts, you have to apply in Wyoming. Um, But I would recommend that you build enough preference points. And it's important to know the difference between a preference and a bonus point. A preference point gives you preference in the draw, meaning when you have enough points, you're guaranteed the tag. Bonus points, you just get extra names in the hat and you hope that those extra names, you know, translate into better draws. So, Wyoming is one of those great states where you can see yourself in the draw, meaning I got this many preference points and I should be able to draw this tag. I can almost count on it, you know, unless there's some uh, decision making and behind the scenes that you're, you're unanticipated. So build preference points in that, you know, July 1 to October 31 time period, build enough points to go on a hunt. Now, to answer your second half of the question, if you don't already have at least six points, we typically tell everyone to burn them in the general and start hunting the general every you know one to three years, depending on whether you go special or regular price. The reason for that is point creep is bad enough. There's over 100,000 non-residents that have points for elk in Wyoming right now. 
and max points is 14. And the reality is there's a lot of units, even at 14, they're not issuing enough tags that it's not guaranteed with max points to draw a handful of units that are really highly sought after. So um, it's not a pretty picture. There's some, there's a decent band of units in that eight to you know, 10, 12 point range right now that are, that are really good hunts. And then there's some, you know, really top end hunts that you only have a shot at if you've got max points. And so if you're six or so, it, it might be worth staying in. If you're starting at zero, you should be looking to turn and burn every couple of years in the general, because like 40% of the state of Wyoming is general elk. Now this scares non-residents off because we think, uh oh, I'm going to be out there in the sea of orange. But what it's important to know is it's general for Wyoming residents only. So a Wyoming resident can buy this tag over the counter and go hunt this. But as non-residents, we have to draw it. And there's 4,200 of these tags, give or take. But it's a vast area um, that encompasses stuff that's clear up by the park and, you know, in wilderness areas that you either have to hunt with a guide or with a Wyoming resident because non-residents can't hunt wilderness uh, unguided or alone without a, a host. Um, but there's a huge amount of area that's, that's, you know, essentially at your disposal. And then to your other point, most units, when you draw a tag in Wyoming, offer an optional archery season. So you've got, you're basically drawing a gun tag for the type one and type two and the general, <clears throat> but then usually there's a, you know, you need to check each individual unit. That's what we specialize in at Hunt and Fool is sharing that information with our clients, you know, that way if you're an archery hunter, you can see, yeah, for sure I get an archery hunt with this tag. But bottom line is I love hunting Wyoming archery because it is a, except for the type nine, which are archery only, it is a gun tag. And which means that a lot of the archery season, I don't see the kind of guys in the field that I do like in North Idaho where you and I were hunting, you know, where you've hunted a ton and I've hunted a lot too. I don't see that kind of quantity of people. And so it's a great archery hunt in this general season tag um, in a lot of, a pile of units that offer that September hunt. Yeah, there's like 4,200 non-resident guys in one unit in Idaho, let alone. So yeah, it's, it's, it's a no-brainer. Um, I love that. And then the thing about Wyoming is, you know, there's, I don't know how many general units there are, but I think there's over 50. How many of those have too much wilderness to where you got to keep in mind that uh, non-resident wilderness rule that I guess we better touch on for those that are in the dark to that? Well, that's that's a hard one to say because almost there's very few units that are all wilderness. There's only a handful of units that are complete wilderness and you just pretty much don't have any elk opportunity outside of the wilderness. Um, then there's a bunch of them up around Yellowstone Park and uh, Grand Teton, kind of in that north uh, west corner particularly, that have a lot of wilderness, but they also have you know plenty of national forests that you can hunt on as well. Um, so I guess in fairness, I would say that it's probably less than 20% of the total general tags that are significantly impacted by wilderness restrictions to the point where it's kind of paralyzing for an archery hunter. Um, so the vast majority of them, there's enough real estate to have a good hunt um, or the entire unit is open to you because there's no wilderness at all. Okay. So when it comes to Wyoming, plan on paying the full price of the regular, which is in the 700s or the special, which is in the 1200 range. Um, and they're going to hold on to your loot for at least five months and you'll be able to edit right before the draw. 
uh, once they know their numbers and out tag allocations. And uh, meanwhile, you may be drawing other states and you you might screw yourself over, which sounds like a good problem. But I've had this problem in the past where I've I got too many good tags and you're just kind of spread real thin. It's not fun. So Wyoming, thanks for that. Um, then they have their their moose, their bighorn sheep and their mountain goat. I personally am on the fence, Jared, like I have probably 13 bighorn points. It's cost me obviously $100 a year donation to Wyoming Fishing Game to have those points. It's gone up. And so I am at a point where I'm thinking about actually bailing on the I'm not a huge like sheep hunt guy. I don't really want to get the sheep bug. I'm actually thinking about just walking away from the 13, 14, 1500 I have into Wyoming because it's just the numbers don't there's too many guys in front of me uh for it to really work out based on the stats that I've seen. I guess we better touch on the sheep and we better touch on the moose as well as the uh the mountain goat and just kind of go give an overview on that so guys can have it on their radar. Yeah, you bet. Real quick, I'm going to mention the elk one more time. One thing that is, again, I want to stress, you're better off building preference points because it's only going to cost you a little over 50 bucks a year for elk in the preference point period. Whereas if you're trying to draw, in other words, get your points first. And then when you have enough points that you pretty much are guaranteed the tag, then go ahead and go all in. That way, Wyoming can have your money anyway, because you're going to get the tag. So they can mm-hmm. ride your credit card or whatever. So it's one that you want to build points for first and then draw the tag in my opinion so put a reminder in your phone or get the hunt and full app for free and yep. come july whatever get your preference point yep it's way cheaper so now moose sheep goat and bison in uh first of all goat and bison do not have point systems in wyoming um mountain goat if you're a mountain goat fanatic wyoming is a reasonable option um, most of the goat hunting is in you know wilderness so um that's a that's a tough one but there's actually decent draws for non-resident mountain goat in wyoming relatively speaking we're still talking two percent type draws so you know not, they're not good bison we recommend you don't even try those bison used to come out of the wildlife refuge there and get shot um it's it's really the cow particularly the cow calf it's 44 or no that's almost three thousand bucks for that and you're pretty much just going to eat three grand because they're none of the bison are coming off anymore they're staying up there in the winter and you know belly deep snow um the bull is a different story we could talk about you know that's again something we consult on goat or i mean moose uh it's not pretty um moose populations have just been decimated in wyoming it's wolves it's you know fences riparian area things like that it's it's not good for moose um there's only a handful of random tags this, oh this is super important for your listeners dan so many people like your 14 sheet points you just mentioned 13 14 those points are no good at all in the random draw so if you put in for a sheep tag say in unit five that has a random tag usually um you have a chance at drawing that random tag. You're not going to draw the preference draw because it's out ahead of you. Again, preference points work different than bonus points. If you don't have enough, you have zero statistical chance. They literally burn your application and throw it out the door. Mm-hmm. But you have a chance at that random tag, but they ignore your points for that random draw. Again, this is something that irritates me about Wyoming. And you go in with zero points just like everybody else for moose and sheep both. Super important to know that if you don't have enough preference points, the points you do have, don't count for drawing the random tags. You're on ground zero with everybody else. Um, and so sheep at 13, 14 points, I would be tempted to bail. 
Um, honestly, if you're not a, a, a sheep nut, the you know the reality is Oregon, Idaho, and Wyoming offer a handful of random sheep tags that are you know that are are you know basically not a points draw, and they're all fairly similarly priced. Wyoming's a little more expensive, um, but I don't know. I'd be more tempted if you're hunting Idaho every year to apply you know, for sheep in Idaho or something like that. Yep. Last year, just to put it in perspective, there was 44 non-resident sheep tags issued in Wyoming. 40 of them went to the preference draw only, which means you had to have 17 points or more to even be considered to draw a tag. And then the other four went random uh, where we're talking about. It's not a pretty picture. Yeah, there's a ton of guys in front of me. So I started doing the math and I was like, yeah, this is a waste of capital. Let's let's figure out something else. And I'm like I said, I'm not die. If I was a diehard cheap guy, I'd be interested in looking into the like the Montana Unlimited or something and just going all in. But that's not me, man. Um, well, let's let's go this route. Let's let's put Wyoming on the back burner and let's touch a little bit on Arizona because I know you know your stuff there. And Arizona kind of runs, I think, a pretty good system. And um, they run their draw a little different too. It's a little goofy as far as how, you know, your first choice and, and then when they actually do random and what they set aside and all that. So can you kind of break that down a little bit for us? Yeah, you bet. Um, and again, I'll just talk about it from an elk point of view, um, since we're on the elk shake podcast here, but basically the Arizona, again, Arizona is a state I do typically recommend that you apply for. Um, they do issue enough tags in Arizona that the point creep isn't, isn't, directly correlated. In other words, if I have 10 this year and it would take me 12 to draw the tag I want, I can sometimes creep toward that and eventually catch that and draw those tags in Arizona. Whereas some other states, the high points are just literally walking away from you a year at a time. So Arizona, I typically recommend you apply. You're going to be out of pocket 230 bucks, give or take, uh, because typically once you buy the non-refundable hunting license in Arizona uh, to the tune of 160 bucks, give or take. I can't, it's yeah. 156 or 165. Um, anyway, um, once you've bought that, then it's the marginal cost of adding sheep and elk and deer and whatever else is not very high. So say, let's say it's 200 bucks out of pocket. It is worth building points in Arizona, in my opinion. And you should always apply in Arizona for an actual tag for two reasons. One, the hardest tags to draw are really, really, really hard to, to draw. They're out there years ahead. I have 20 points in Arizona. I'm finally gonna try to cash them in this year and, and draw. So I've literally been applying for 18 years. Um, and plus I have a loyalty point and I have a permanent point for taking their hunter education class. So I, I'm at 20. But point being um, with Arizona, you need to buy point guard. If you're worried about it, if you're a busy person and you're like, oh, man, what if I accidentally do draw this tag of a lifetime and I can't go no matter what? If you buy point guard, it's five dollars extra for your application in Arizona. You can turn your tag back in, get your points reinstated and earn a point for that year. But you can only do it one time per species. So you pay that extra five bucks, you swing for the fence and you try to draw the tag of a lifetime no matter what, because Arizona does issue random tags it, you don't have to have max points to draw tags. There are some random tags in every category. So um, we a always try to apply. B remember that Arizona looks at your looks at two choices 
unlike Wyoming, where they're going to look at your first choice only, and then the only way you get additional choices awarded is if there's not enough demand for the tags you apply for. Arizona is going to look at both your first two choices before it moves to the next applicant. So I always list a swing for the fence choice as my number one. And then the second choice is something that I would still accept, but the draws are probably going to be easier on, right? Um, and that way, Arizona has a chance to give you the, if your name pops up real early, you knock it out of the park. If you come out a little bit later down the road, you may still have a tag available. Um, and then, yeah, you you know, there's a wide range of hunts in Arizona from late archery elk hunts that don't take as many years to draw, but you're still hunting units that have giant bulls, you know, 380 plus bulls are killed every year. And a lot of these units that have these late tags that are a lot easier to draw. Yes. You're not hunting the rut. Yes. It's going to be cold and crunchy snow and that kind of thing, but you are hunting a unit that has 380 bulls in it. Um, so there's a wide range of, of overall options. And then the way Arizona conducts their draw, they have a bonus point pass, which, so they have a hybrid draw that looks a little bit like bonus points and a little bit like preference points meaning the people that have the most points have special tags set aside for them as long as there is more than one non-resident tag available. They, they get a little set aside for the people like myself that have been after it for almost two decades. And then the other remainder of the tags go random. Roger that. That's some good information. So uh, it's really important that, you know, you don't let Arizona get out of your reach. You know, you, you come back every year. How many is there? Is there any nuances between Wyoming and Arizona where if you take a year off from applying, you forfeit your points? Yeah. So in Arizona, after you've applied five years in a row, you know, make sure everybody understands it's consecutively. They give you a loyalty point. And the first year you miss, your loyalty point is gone and you got to go back five more years before you get it back. So and Wyoming has no such thing, but Wyoming will purge your points if you don't apply for two years. Again, Wyoming is so egregious to non-residents, it's not even funny. They're like, yep, give us all your money. Uh, we'll take out all we can take. And then, by the way, if you don't apply for two years because you're busy or you're out of the country or whatever, we're going to purge your points in two years. Bastards. Bastards. I say uh, that Hunter Education point, I was hoping you didn't mention that, but uh, confession, I have the same point. I literally bought an airplane ticket and rented a car and drove and got my hunter safety. Uh, I, and I think it's cool. And I will speak to the the late season archery is an extremely daunting, difficult hunt. Getting the tags hard, but let alone when you actually get there. I've done that hunt a couple times. It is really hard to get in close to elk with a bow. The winds are very swirly in canyon country. And if you're in country that's not canyon country, it's tough to find elk in that P, you know, PBJ country. They can hide real well. And then you just the weather is very unpredictable. Like this year, if you were down there, did you see how much snow they got? Oh, they got killed. It was It was terrible. Yeah, so I'd say based on the sign I've seen, I bet the rut there is might be just worth waiting for. I mean, I saw rubs on the sides of National Forest roads. You'd just be like, oh, wow, a bull was standing on the road rubbing, breaking this tree. This is insane. So I hope you draw, man. It'll be pretty cool. Uh, so once Wyoming and Arizona come and go, what's the next state to kind of keep an eye out for? Is it Montana? Yeah, Montana uh, actually bumped their deadline back a little bit this year, thankfully. Um, they gave us two more weeks to apply for deer and elk in, in uh, Montana. Okay, because Montana and New Mexico are kind of the same time. That's why I was asking the oh, question. Well, I like New Mexico, but yeah, let's just touch a little bit on each, and I'm good on time if you are. 
Yeah, the good news in New Mexico is no point system. So you get to start where everybody else is. If you've never applied, you can. Um, they did start charging you a non-refundable hunting license fee of $65 last year. You're out of pocket about 90 bucks or so to apply in New Mexico. New Mexico, like Wyoming, is one of the few states that hits your card for the whole tag fee up front, but they don't hang on to your money that long. Uh, usually if you apply late in the period, you at most you'll have to pay interest on your credit card one statement and you'll get your refund back if you don't draw. So New Mexico is a great one to fill in with. It used to be uh, you know, kind of my backup Wyoming plan if I didn't draw Wyoming, but now we don't have that luxury with Wyoming's draw coming out later. Uh, definitely a wide range of opportunities in New Mexico. You owe it to yourself to do a lot of research there. Great bulls can be killed in almost every unit in New Mexico. So, uh, but with that said, we'll jump over to Montana. Montana is an interesting one. I, I tell people all the time, Montana's a lot like Wyoming. Now, thankfully a few years ago, Montana said, all right, now you can buy points only for deer and elk and, you know, the trophy species too, antelope, moose, sheep, goat. And before it would cost you over $200 a year out of pocket, non-refundable to just build points for elk in Montana because of the way they made you uh, apply through the draw. So now Montana is a state for $25 a year. You can buy an elk point as a non-resident during the points only period, which is again, pretty much concurrent with Wyoming. So it's a little shorter. It's July 1 to, to September 30. And I tell everybody who's a passionate elk hunter, you owe it to yourself to be buying points in Montana. It's currently one of the best values. It went from one of the worst values a few years back to one of the best values out there. Spend your 25 bucks, but don't try to build points through the draw unless you want to go on a general season hunt. And uh, we'll, I'll come back to that. But bottom line is um, once you've gotten three to five bonus points, and again, important to note that these are bonus points, not preference points. Montana squares your points when you go in the draw, so you get a little bit of an exponential advantage on the number of years that you apply. Once you're at three to five, you can draw some pretty good archery tags in Montana. Um, you're getting really, and again, these are not guaranteed because it's a bonus point system, but your odds get really, really good of drawing that 900-20 multi-unit tag that I shared earlier that I ate <laughs> this, this last fall. You can also, both of the you know kind of famous Missouri breaks hunts, with about five points, your odds are almost perfect for drawing those tags. So for a hundred and a quarter, 150 bucks in non-refundable point fees, you can get to a point where then you throw your name in the hat and actually try to draw the tag and the permit. And the reason you don't up, apply in the draw again, uh, coming back to that is Montana's going to hit your card for you know a little over a grand if you go for an elk combo and all the other fees that go with it. And my and you're probably going to get that elk tag uh, that's good for general season units in Montana, which is a vast area. I hunt it, well, I had hunted it every single year uh, prior to this last year. So it's I'm not scaring you off of it, but the point is, is if you don't want to hunt general season, don't apply in the draw until you have enough points to draw, that you have really good odds of drawing your permit. Because Montana then says, all right, well, you got your $1,000. We got your $1,000. We'll give you 800 of it back if you want to turn your tag in. So it costs you $200 to build a point that way, roughly. These are very rough numbers, by the way, uh, versus $25 to do it in the points-only period and then eventually drive the tag you want. Did I, did I confuse you good enough there, Dan? Well, no. In fact, I wish more people would listen to what you just said because it, there's so many people that do that. They take up all these general tags, and then you're like, God, they sold out, and then all of a sudden they return them, and 
these these folks are losing two hundred dollars, which is stupid, and they're basically taken away from guys like that actually want the Montana General tag, and then you have to try to vie for one of those turned in tags, um, which is kind of hard to do. Yeah, yeah, no, exactly. You can get on a roster, you can get on a waiting list, and 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 acquire tags fairly frequently that way, but it's not guaranteed. So yeah, no, I wish they would do that. And, and again, to, to stress exactly what I would, I, I'll be even more precise. If you want to draw the Missouri breaks, I would build three points before you start applying. If you want to draw the 900-20 multi-unit uh, zone, I would build two points and then start applying. Because last year with two points in the 900 tag, your odds were about 67% of drawing that tag. So I mean, you're starting to get really, really good when you're two out of three. Um, but the Missouri breaks is a little harder to draw, so I would get to three before I started throwing my name in the hat and risking my two hundred dollars of non-refundable money. And from what my research has done throughout the years is that that nine twenty tag is definitely awesome, but you're going to run into exactly what you did in a lot of areas, which is like just a lot of these elk aren't going to be on public, and when they are, <clears throat> it's not for very long. So it's a great tag, but there's a lot of, especially in that south eastern part of montana where you know it's pay-to-play country yep it's a gps hunt honestly is what i always tell people i mean there are some exceptions to that you can backpack into the snowies or the crazies and you know i mean we're talking very tough physical hunts and 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 be on uh, a lot of public land but there's a lot of people hunting those spots too Mm, definitely Awesome, Jared. Well, dude, we covered some pretty cool ground for our listeners. Call to actions as far as just where should they, if they if they're interested in learning more about hunting full and all the opportunities there, where should they go? Well, um, you know, we offer a free issue of the magazine on on our website. Um, there's a spot there where you can request a free copy. Uh, that, of course, would kind of give you an idea of what the research looks like. But we love it if you just call in. If anybody calls in and mentions this uh, elk shaped podcast and wants to have a try before you buy free hunt consultation, we'd be happy to set that up. How that works, though, just so our listeners understand, we triage those calls. They come in. Uh, one of our friendly receptionists will pick it up. You'll ask a question like, hey, I want to talk to one of the, I, you know, I'm Jim Smith. I listen to the Elk Shape podcast. Um, I'd really like to talk to one of the hunt advisors about hunting. And, and then they're going to ask some follow-up questions, you know, is what's your weapon? Um, you know, all the specifics they can get. They put it into a call board that comes into all of our, our laps. And then the best guy for that call will call you back. If it's Arizona Elk, I'm actually not your best guy. We've got guys here that have, you know, have lifetime Arizona certifications. If it's Idaho elk, I might be the guy that calls you back. So, um, you're welcome to call in, mention the elk shape podcast. It's, uh, 435-865-1020 is the number. And you can, uh, you know, try before you buy. Awesome. Jared, where are, what are you most excited about in 2020? What do you set out to do? Um, honestly, the Arizona elk hunt and, you know, it's a big, big commitment when you burn 20 points. Um, and you know, I think you and I, (laughs) I don't want to go down a rabbit trail on you, but we talked about this the other day. Sometimes you put too much pressure on those big tags and I'm really at an age and stage of my life where I just want to make that hunt the broadest experience it can be. So Arizona's not too far away from here in Cedar City. I'm going to, my wife and I are going to be down there camping every, every three, four day weekend. I can squeeze out, we'll run some trail cams, just going to really enjoy that Arizona elk experience, assuming I draw, which I, I probably will with the strategy that I have and the points that I have. That's awesome. Well, Jared, CEO, hunting full and more, more importantly, hardworking, 
blue collar bow hunter right here, guys. Just the real deal. And uh, like we said in the intro, and and just a husband, a father, and a great human, and a breath of fresh air in the hunting industry. Looking forward to seeing you in person, man. Are you going to be at ATA or uh, Western Expo? I will be at both, so I'm looking forward to seeing you again. Likewise, man. I'm going to give you a big bear hug. Thanks for your time, guys. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you on the next one. Well, that's a wrap. I hope you enjoyed that episode. We are going to bring on Jared in the future for sure. Guys, call that number. It's in the show notes. Try a consult out. Get some information out of them. Take it for a test drive. You know, not a lot of other companies offer real, actual live interaction with knowledgeable guys. Like, if you don't know who Garth Jensen is, I'm going to get him on here when it comes Colorado application time. I don't know of a bigger nerd when it comes to this stuff. And the information can be so convoluted. It's nice to kind of clear it up, especially if you have a weapon and a couple units in mind, you can kind of clarify your plans. I'd say it's as good, if not better, than talking to like a wildlife biologist or a game warden. These guys know their stuff. This is all they do. And they're working 60 to 80 hours a week from basically January through June. And then they're just taking phone calls in the summer. And then all those guys leave the office and go hunt. So they're out there. They're not just armchair quarterbacks. I think that's pretty cool. And finally, thanks, Jared Lyle, for your time. There's a couple of edits we decided to make after the show. The first one was basically that, hey, Wyoming is not going to take away any hunts. So during that five-month period, the only thing they're going to update is the actual amount of tags available. Number could go up, could go down could stay the same so just keep an eye on that and then as far as getting an actual point again i just want to reiterate wyoming does not reward you a point if you are not successful in the draw you have to go back in and buy your point for the next year between sometime between july and october so just remember that put a reminder in your phone utilize the hunt and full app uh, check it out if you want. Take advantage of that phone call. I think a consult is a great offer to actually talk to an expert and kind of get a pulse on your portfolio. Thank you, Jared Lyle, once again. Thank you all for listening to the Elk Shape podcast. We're going to do more of these as far as state by state, and I think it's really exciting. You got a lot of options out there in the podcast world. We appreciate your time. Have the best week ever. We'll talk to you guys later. <laughs>